Welcome to this week's episode of Quiddity on the Circe Podcast Network, where we engage in the classical spirit of inquiry. I'm your guy, Brandon LeBlanc, and I am joined once again by Christine Perrin uh, for our Poets Corner. So thank you, Christine, for joining us. My pleasure. It's great to be here. It is always fun to be with you and do some poetry. So those of you who have been listening along know that we kind of wrapped up three episodes on on Hopkins last time. We really got to dig in a little bit to his his work and his um, the particulars of his of his poetry. And so we thought we'd move, jump a little bit forward and pick someone a little bit more contemporary. And so this week we're going to read a poem, start with a poem by Richard Wilbur, The Beautiful Changes. So did we do Herbert yet? We have not done Herbert yet. So we'll go back to him. Make a note and go back to Herbert for sure. That's the fun thing. Each each poem can lead us to, oh, we should read someone one by so-and-so. Yeah. So (laughs) it's the nice thing when 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 um when you get into the 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 history of of writers and falling on each other and echoing each other and talking back and forth to each other across the across the millennia. So it is such a pleasure that weaving and networking that happens when you be you enter the system anywhere mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. your way to so many of the nodes it just happens very naturally yeah and it's so imp- and for each of them it's you know impossible for them not be influenced by what the ones they read and the ones they loved and you can just see it uh, echo through so it's beautiful exactly the notion of the canon is very organic mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it does require people to keep it alive um, but it, but it also seems to have a bit of a life of its own that is entirely up to us, you know, like what survives a hundred years. Yeah, right. We, we can't control that. Well, and there's a weaving in and a rediscovery. Um, yes. Uh, uh, in a class I'm doing with Matt on Plato, he was talking about how Aristotle had been lo- largely unread for a while until Aquinas really kind of brought him back to the forefront, and then. He kind of had a resurgence. And on the other podcast, we were wrapping up the Epic of Gilgamesh, which was completely lost. We didn't even have it until, you know, fragments a few hundred years ago. Um, but you can clearly see how it influenced things that came after it that we did have, you know, Homer and and others. And now we're part of that work of weaving it back in and seeing mm. how it fits. So it's kind of fun. I love your description of it. That's a really wonderful description. We're part of the work. Yeah. Well, would you like to read first this time or me? Why don't you read first this time? Okay. The Beautiful Changes by Richard Wilbur. One wading in a fall meadow finds on all sides the Queen Anne's lace lying like lilies on water. It glides from the walker. It turns dry grass to a lake. As the slightest shade of you valleys my mind in fabulous blue lucerns. The beautiful changes as a forest is changed by a chameleon's tuning his skin to it. As a mantis, arranged on a green leaf, grows into it, makes the leaf leafier, and proves any greenness is deeper than anyone knows. Your hands hold roses always in a way that says they are not only yours. The beautiful changes in such kind ways wishing ever to sunder things and things selves for a second finding, to lose for a moment all that it touches back to wonder. 
Mm-mm. That's such a pleasure to hear you read it. You have a, such a wonderful reading voice. Thank you. And I've been reading it to myself, but it's so nice to hear someone else read it. It always is. Also someone who understands the poem, because this the syntax of this poem is difficult. Yeah, it took um, a few times through to kind of start figuring that out for sure. Yeah. Um, the beautiful changes. One wading a fall meadow finds on all sides the Queen Anne's lace lying like lilies on water. It glides so from the walker. It turns dry grass to a lake as the slightest shade of you valleys my mind in fabulous blue lucernes. The beautiful changes as a forest is changed by a chameleon's tuning his skin to it, as a mantis arranged on a leaf grows into it, makes the leaf leafier and proves any greenness is deeper than anyone knows. Your hands hold roses always in a way that says they are not only yours. The beautiful changes in such kind ways, wishing ever to sunder things and things selves for a second finding, to lose for a moment all that it touches back to wonder. So I was trying to think of language for change um, mm. and the different kinds of change there are. You know, um, I think a lot of people are so aware of the change of disintegration. Mm. But this change is a change of metamorphosis mm-hmm. that we're talking about here. And in it, you feel the wonder of tone um, of the poet all the way through. And you know, okay, we're dealing with the change of metamorphosis. This is not entropy. Right, right. Of course, change and entropy have an integral relationship with each other, but there's metamorphosis. Um, But I love the way he just, he, he plops us in a meadow um wading a fall meadow and right away we have that verb of the meadow being compared to the water um and then the queen anne's lace which is that beautiful um weed which is now like cultivated and used in case um but being compared to lilies on water so you know almost an image of grasses like like an ocean or like a lake or a lily pond. And so the walker, it glides so from the walker. So we have the walker who's the one referred to, and we have the rippling out of these um, Queen Anne's lace on grass. Um, It turns dry grass to a lake. Uh, so, So there's a turning, right? There's a changing. As the slightest shade of you. So here now we have a beloved, right? Addressed um, an apostrophe mm-hmm. of the a beloved. And that again, just to, for readers, this is, these are things always to be thinking of with poetry tone, um, the apostrophe, who's the poem addressed to, who's the beloved. Um, and are we dealing with love or death, basically? And here we're dealing with love as the slightest shade of you. 
And then we've got this <clears throat> super interesting verb, valleys my mind. So here's a beloved valleying the mind of the beloved in fabulous blue lucernes, which is a Swiss lake famous for its blueness. So the shade, the presence of the beloved, even as an imagine in the imagination, covers the mind with like a blue lake. So, I mean, all these um, metamorphoses in this stanza, I think would be fun for us to kind of trace together. Yeah, I think I, I, I like the I like that idea. Do we want to go through and do some of our the the lines? Oh, the echoing back, yes. echoing back, yeah. Um, lace lying like lilies. Valleys my mind. Chameleons tuning his skin to it. Any greenness is deeper than anyone knows. Leaf leafier. <laughs> Hands hold roses. Wishing ever to sunder things and things selves. Touches back to wonder. Slightest sheet of you. It glides so from the walker. Kind ways. Lose for a moment. The beautiful changes as a forest is changed. The beautiful changes in such kind ways. I'm also kind of tempted to just chart the images so like fall yeah. meadow queen anne's lace mm -hmm. grass to a lake the lucernes mm -hmm. chameleon's skin mantis on a green leaf roses and hands A moment. Also interesting here in this poem, I think, to, to follow the verbs. Waiting. Mm-hmm. Finds. Glides. Oh, lying. I missed lying there. Mm-hmm. Turns. Valleys. Changes. Changed. Mm -hmm. Tuning. Mm. Arranged. 
makes and proves holds a hold says sunder to sunder to lose touches back that's one of the things that caught me off guard for when i read the that change changes changed when i read the title of the poem i, I read it as beautiful changes like uh changes being the the now the, the, what the thing is you know the, what the change is yeah. but yeah. in the poem yeah. it's all it's all verbs it's how beauty changes it's it's the it's the action of beauty changing mm-hmm. which is which is was interesting it is so interesting and obviously he meant for that confusion linguistic confusion mm-hmm. confusion this is also the title of a book of his okay so it was a title poem so very important idea that he's working with across that book is that typical when that's the title of the of a book of poems that it's the idea that's kind of being worked through in several in most of the poems yeah okay or just across the poems in some way yeah imperceptibly sometimes very obviously others okay um wilbur lived from 1921 to 2017. so i mean he lived so many years almost a hundred and was really a fixture of american poetry at a very masterful in terms of his formal abilities perhaps a bit maybe a little criticized for his polish and his Mm. refinement and um maybe for making things refining things that ought not to be refined but vastly admired seems to me almost like the single-handed inheritor of robert frost Mm. um a real thinker in poetry do you think that criticism arises primarily from being just being in an era where where the abstract was more was more praise and more um in vogue it's the abstract i think it's um the you know he lived in a time when people were trying to bring unexpected ugly things into art okay and he was bringing things in in a refined way that offended that sensibility you know sure um well what do we what do we have in the first stanza in terms of these beautiful changes well it's funny that you mentioned he pops us into the the meadow and then gives us his imagery of the lake it was so much so that i had when i got i was like when i got to the line dry grass to a lake i had to go check and make sure i was reading the poem right <laughs> like i wasn't sure if he was walking next to water or if he was walking <laughs> so i had to go back up to, yes. no no we're in a meadow we're in a meadow i just had to go back and check because it was such a natural kind of flow through that alliteration of queen's Anne's lace lying like lilies on the water i was like I got a picture so I got so strongly a picture of something lying on the water in my head when he said mm-hmm. that that I had to go back and make sure check no wait we're not by water we're by we're by a meadow. Mhm. It I had the same experience in the first line with one when I first read it the first time. Mm. 
one wading a meadow finds on all sides. I, I, I didn't, I didn't know what that one was, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so that, that threw me the first time too, even though I had read this poem before. Um, it's really brilliant that he gives us that water image in that first line with the word waiting. Like he, he introduces it right away with yes. the word waiting, which we typically think, you know, use with water. So. Right. That is brilliant. Um, and then glides. Um, mm. I um, also note that the whole first stanza is one sentence and that huh. not yeah. an accident. You know, he is gliding. He is, making room for this metamorphosis of change, which is both an imagination, a function of the imagination. Mm -hmm. um, I think largely a function of the imagination. Um, you know, you're one, there's some, this, this speaker waiting in a fall meadow finds these Queen Anne's lace flowers lying like lilies on water gliding it glides so from the walker it turns dry, dry grass to a lake so we've got the queen anne's lace and the meadow compared to a lake um or turning it's not even compared to a lake it's it's we're in the process of mm -hmm. that change, right uh, of the mind the human mind and its perception laid upon the physical world, the natural world. Right. And performing that change because of the mind. Yeah, the right. mind recognizing even what's unsaid in that, in that, yeah. And likening, right? So it's a, it's metaphor is part of this metamorphosis mm -hmm. um, because the mind likens and that's part of um, the kind of vitality and animation of the world. Um, that we can look at the this beautiful prairie or or meadow in in New England where Wilbur lived, um, and, and and imagine it um, a lake, and then imagine it yet again um, the uh, another kind of metamorphosis, which is the shade of the beloved. Mm -hmm. um, valleying the mind, whatever that means, um, in blue, like the color of lakes in Switzerland. So, I mean, like, wow, what is going on with that kind of metamorphosis? Yeah. And I'm, I missed valleying it the first couple times through as a verb. Um, mm -hmm. cause it's just uh, so unused to that. Uh, but so then when you have to think about, when you have to notice it and think about it, what does that, what does that mean? Right. It, um, came to mind for me he's like he he's sunk into the deep recesses of memory right it's that suddenly he's into the to remember this person remembering this person you the, the the beloved um is he's now been transported deep into the into memory um you know mm. i get the sense he's not thinking of someone he was just seeing yesterday and he just happens to be on a walk without her today <laughs> it's he i feel oh, like he's it is someone who's a ubiquitous presence in his life yeah, I, um, yeah. I wonder. I wonder if it's someone who, but that he's been, yeah, maybe been. There's been an absence for some reason. You know, like there's not not that there's a permanent absence from this person, but he's dwelling on them. But maybe not. Maybe it's just someone who's who's the constant. 
Um, and because they've been the constant, he can think deeply into years of memories of this person. Um, yeah, I think that's well said. Um, I think too, the next stanza helps us understand the metamorphosis of this mm -hmm. stanza because, you know, we, we can easily make that transference. I mean, I think about Willa Cather and the prairie and the way the prairies compared to like ocean waves, you know? Right. Right. Um, but uh so we can kind of understand that one but then the fact that we have the the forest is changed by a chameleon's tuning his skin to it that's yeah it's like a a film laid upon a thing um you know it's it's almost like those books where you you bring another page out and and you lay the film on the picture that's existing right and that perception of the second layer changes the first and uh that's how I, that helps me to know what to do with mm -hmm. the shade of you valleys my mind. Yeah, because it's here where we get that introduction of change being the verb, not, not like I was thinking of it as a, more of a noun in the, in the title. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where we started to get this right. The, the, the beautiful, the beautiful, whether that we're talking about the universal, the things changes as and then it gives us these these uh, these examples um and what struck me about the one the first one the chameleon tuning its skin to it his skin to the forest mm -hmm. um that's a very um it's a it's a really unique kind of change it's one that's uh you know uh animals that can change their skin to match their surroundings is uh, one of these kind of wonderful things about nature that we have that's always been fascinating to people right that it can cha actually change its physical appearance to match its surroundings um and yet at the same time the forest is vast and the chameleon mm -hmm. is tiny and it but it ch does change the forest it 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 does change that vast thing even just a little bit and beauty mm -hmm. sometimes works that way it's just little changes that 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 bring when we get to the at the end of the poem the wonder right um mm -hmm. uh, so that was it struck me as such a small thing changing changing such a big thing but it's still just magical and it's interesting too because i, I think wouldn't a chameleon be in a jungle yeah yeah or um, or yeah, by the beach or somewhere yeah forest is an interesting choice so it, i mean i think again there's a bit of we understand that we're in an imaginative sort of aesthetic realm mm -hmm. um, not to say that he's not talking about a real thing this changing skin tuning i love the word tuning tuning to it you know in suggesting the harmony um of the natural world and of um even the imaginative world the way our perceptions um get tuned to nature mm -hmm. um, and nature then again informs us about the shape of things, um, but also the, you know, nature tells us about ourselves and then we, and we look at nature to tell us things. But what's interesting here is that, you know, like for instance, the trees and spring tells us that there's such a thing as renewal. There's such a thing as resurrection. I mean, that's how, that's how we view it. Um, the but here nature is interacting with the imagination and nature's actually 
nature and imagination are kind of trading places in interesting and weird ways, you know, like the the valleying of the mind with these mm. lakes can't actually happen, right? Right. And it's the valleying of the mind with a lake that is actually the color of the beloved, you know? So yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I think he's he's partly trying to say that we are bound up. It seems that we're bound up with nature and it's it informs our imagination and then our for our imagination feeds right. into it the way a chameleon, this small little thing, could actually reinvent and touch us with wonder again about a thing so big and vast and impenetrable like a forest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I didn't even think about it till you mentioned it, but I don't even think, and I didn't, I guess I didn't realize he was in New England necessarily. I don't know Wilbur's life that well, but I don't think chameleons naturally exist anywhere in North America, maybe even the Americas. I think, I don't think that they are natural to this area. So, I mean, we have lizards that change color a little bit, you know, green to brown and stuff, but so he's clearly drawing on this much stronger image, right? Everyone knows what a chameleon is and how, how versatile it's, it's color changing is. And so he's yeah. drawing on that thing that's, that he knows is not only in his imagination, but in the imagination of the people who are going to hear the poem um, and draws yeah. them into it. Yes. And, and signals to us that he's talking about the imagination. Yeah. Yeah. If he just said the lizard, it wouldn't be the same poem. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And why it says forest, perhaps, too. Yes. Yeah. Forest. Yeah. And I really love the um, how, what do you make of the image of the mantis arranged on a green leaf? Grows into it, makes the leaf leafier and proves that greenness why? is deeper than anyone knows. Yeah, because that like when I think typically of the mantis blending in with the leaf, it's this predatory action, right? It's it's hiding so it can catch something. Um and it's, and it's, um, it's a lie, right? It's fake. It's not really a leaf, but he is saying, no, it's, it makes the leaf leafier. <laughs> it, uh, it, it increases our understanding of leafness <laughs> to know, to see something else match leafiness it actually helps us to see the leaf more. Um, yes. That's a really good way to put it. And so, and you imagine like little children, right? When little children, um, pretend to be a monkey or an elephant or a tree, them having to figure out how to act out that thing shows you more about what the nature of those things are. Right. And yes. so in the same way, he's saying the mantis, the mantis having to pretend to be a leaf helps us to see what a leaf is, um, yes. but to slow with this counterfeit. I mean, even it's so uh, I just thought that was brilliant because I never would have thought of it that way. Um, but he, here, he brings that alive for us in the poem. And, and then it goes right into the greenness is right. Yeah. yeah. Leafiness and then greenness. Like there's, yeah. um, it's very, without being explicit about it, very kind of platonic in the, it there is. is a, there is a, there's a greenness that we don't even can't even comprehend. And mm -hmm. the, the greenness we get experienced, the more we can experience the greenness here, the closer we get to it. And there's a leafiness that we can't completely comprehend. And the, but the closer we can get to it, the closer we're getting to, to, Anything that helps us understand it better is helping us get closer to the the leafiness of God of God's mind. Um, even That's if that thing is a mantis thing to say, and I think as well, it is so um, gently illustrating the whole Platonic notion that the reason that we have 
that the mantis tells us about leafness and the mantis tells us about greenness is because leafness and greenness have manifold manifestations. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's because there are essences um, and that the, these essences have different manifestations. Um, And this is part of the wonder, you know, it doesn't even have to be that complicated. It's like, there's an essence, but then this essence gets manifest in multiple ways. Mm So we get to experience it in multiple ways. So just, and and here it's so interesting. We've got greenness and we've got leafiness. We also have blueness and blue lucerneness. You know what I mean? So we have mm-hmm. blueness. Yeah. And then we have lakeness and then we have lucerneness, which is a particular yes. lake, you know? And yeah. then we're comparing that to um, the feeling of the beloved, right? The feeling Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. shade of the beloved you know some people have um synesthesia and um they actually literally experience a color in reference to another person or a number huh. um it's a kind of blending of sensory experience yeah, yeah um but here he's suggesting that actually the imaginative and sensory world is just geared up for this yeah and that's part of thingness that it can have all these different manifestations, all these right. different prophecies. And that, you know, you're leading me to think more what we, that to lean more toward um, it is this person that's, that's, that's this deep presence in the, in his life. Mm-hmm. And because I think about when there's someone who's an acquaintance and that, that, that person comes to mind. I remember that person it's, you know, a conversation we had and it's not even the whole conversation it's a couple of lines that we you know, at, at an event we were at and i met them and i've talked to him a couple of times since then that's that's the, that's the depth of that relationship right mm-hmm. but when i think of my wife or my children or my parents um i don't necessarily th- when that person is on my mind it's not necessarily specific you know memories so much as is that person's personness like just yeah. my experience of them as a person and that's a deeper shadow like he's talking this deep blue valleying you know if he's going deep into memory if you're in a deep valley that's gonna have it's gonna often have big shadows cast into it over it. it's not gonna be in the sunshine except for at noon you know if you're in a deep valley and um and that's the kind of memory he's giving us and then the just layers that on, like you said, with the blueness and the blueness of Lucerne in particular. And, you know, mm-hmm. um, something about the color, that color of that lake captures his, his experience of this person's personness. You know what I mean? Yes. And that's, that's the best, and that's all, that's the most he can give it to us in words is she's, she's the blueness of Lucerne. <laughs> like that's, that's, oh, that's yeah. who she is in my mind. Absolutely. Right? That is a really great um, description. And, it also reminds me of a number of Hopkins poems that are talking about thisness. Mm. You know, um, he had that concept of inscape. Right. Right. We talked we about it a little last time. Ended up talking about too much, did we? But um, the thisness mm-hmm. of um, something of its of its essence um, and its its selfhood, almost, and and you know even even the natural world had such a depth of patterned being, you know, Mm -hmm. that we could perceive it. And not only could we perceive it, but it could impact us. And then even we could impact it, 
you know, so here I do really think that Wilbur is tra traversing that same ground um, that that Hopkins loved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't want to interrupt our discussion of the poem, but I, I was rereading this morning an essay of Wilbur's that I love. Okay, that I recommend yeah, everyone. It's called Poetry and Happiness. Excellent, and it is absolutely phenomenal um but he is talking about how um poetry has um a cataloging impulse that expresses itself as a longing to possess the whole world and to praise it or at least feel it mm. and he describes it this way through hopkins um uh and he re references a poem of catalog of Hopkins, Pied Beauty. Um, he describes it as God being God being praised first and last. Um, but Hopkins doesn't give us an inventory of the creation. Rather, he sets out to celebrate one kind of beauty, Pied Beauty, hmm. the beauty of all things that are patchy, particolored, variegated. And in his tally of variegated things, there's no hierarchy or other logic. His mind jumps seemingly at random from sky to trout to chestnuts to finches, and finally by way of landscape to the gear and tackle of the various trades. The poem sets out then to give scattered examples of a single class of things. And yet in its final effect, this is a poem of universal praise that implies a vast reservoir of other things that might just as well have been mentioned. Right, right. He's arguing that this is like one of the, the jobs of poetry. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, of course, that's what Wilbur's doing too. He's cataloging um, the metamorphosis, the metamorphic beauty of, um, the, the metamorphosis of beauty, the fact right. that it and the the kindness of that even right right because he starts off with the the it's the time of year when the queen's anne's lace comes out right it's this meadow isn't always covered in these flowers it's covered in it during this time of year mm. so and and that changes it from my I, I mean i'm guessing that during the rest of the year when it's just kind of grass that the whatever cows and sheep mm. eat on it doesn't move the same way, like like and look like water as much. But mm. when you get these tall, kind of flowery things, they they move in the wind more like the water, or, or call that to mind. Um, and you know, we often get that kind of imagery with with the wheat, you know, and uh, people talk about wheat that way. Um, but if I remember correctly, these are kind of like tall with a little like bulb of tiny little flowers, kind of like baby's breath almost type size flowers. And so like a little doily of lace. Yeah. 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 And so it flutters like that. And so it causes, and then if, you know, if it's white, that might look like who knows what exactly he's imagining, but the caps on the waves or whatever it is. Um, and so lilies, it's lilies on a pond. Yeah. He does talk about, yeah, the lilies on a pond, um, but gliding around, you know, so it's um, yeah, he's, he's cataloging these tiny, the smallest changes, whether it's the field changes because it blooms, the, the the chameleon, the one little chameleon on the tree, um, and though that cataloging, like you said, is similar to Hopkins when he catalogs a bunch of pied things, and he does he picks a category pied things, and then he picks certain things within that category, 
and and uses them uh, to draw our attention to something far beyond just those things and so yes I think this last stanza is so interesting um, because, uh, oh, before we go to the last stanza, I just want to say, and for all this nature is never spent, there lives the dearest freshness deep down things. That's the Hopkins line from mm-hmm. God's Prayer, which I think is what I want on my tombstone. <laughs> um, and I feel like this is his line like that. Um, makes the leaf leafier and proves any greenness is deeper than anyone knows. I think that's Wilbur's version of nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down and deep down things. Mm. But then the next kind of metamorphosis is so interesting. Your hands hold roses always in a way that says they're not only yours. The beautiful mm. changes in such kind ways. So, I mean, wow, what do we make of this new categorical mm-hmm. version? beautiful change yeah i uh, i was trying to think whether the the hands holding roses is a change in and of itself because you're taking them from the plant and now they're now they're you know a bouquet of roses or your roses mm-hmm. in your hand as opposed to growing what on the bush itself um which i which then if that's the case, then what that next part is fascinating because typically you you do that, you take them off to possess them, right? To as opposed to leaving them on the plant. Um, but she holds them in a way that they're not only yours. Like she she gathers them, I guess, to bless others with them to to, to or to to. I don't know. It, it, does it does it change her? Does it change her appearance to hold the beautiful roses in a way that is um is out toward the world and toward him. Um, mm. Maybe just him. Maybe that's not the world. Maybe it's just, just him. Not always. They're not only yours, they're mine too. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's something more intimate, but, um, but. Well, it seems, um, I mean, it's a very abstract thing, but it seems like there's something in the holding of these roses that, yeah, perhaps, they're ours, right? Because they are the symbol, they are a symbol of love. Um, perhaps, I mean, given the nature of the poem, I would think it would be as wide as as many things as possible, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Perhaps they're they're the worlds, right? Um, that they this the holder of them knows their many roles, knows their many significances mm-hmm. um knows that they say something about the world and about the beloved and about um maybe even our literary inheritance because of course roses are are part of that too and we're talking about the mind and the way the mind uses a thing and and so you know they're not only yours mm-hmm. uh, literally but also even metaphorically right literarily. um they are they have a significance um and a belonging to the world and to themselves and then yeah, yeah. go ahead Sorry. well in the next lo- the next line is the beautiful changes in such kind ways yes. which i think draws this this um stanza back to the the previous two 
in that this image of it, holding roses in a way they're not only they're not only yours. Mm-hmm. This is how beauty the, like the changes are not just for the chameleon. The changes is the change of the chameleon. Yes, protects the chameleon. It's it's a beauty of its own, but it's also a beauty that's for us to to like we like we've been talking about to see and wonder in and. Yeah. And be drawn into higher things. Um, the same that with the the change of the meadow is not just for the meadow; it's for everyone that passes by and gets to see the see the flowers. Um, I love that line. I'm drawn into higher things. Um, it's not just for the man, the the chameleon. It's for the forest, and it's for mm, us. Mm-hmm, no, it's, mm-hmm. it, it's this multi faceted multivalent i think multivalency is what he is getting at you know the the many um the amplitude the Mm -hmm. gratuity right this is something that um a lot of people have talked about in relationship to aesthetics and just the sense of the overabundance the superabundance of the world right you know that the that the chameleon affects the forest, the forest affects the chameleon, it affects our minds, our minds affect it, you know, like there's just all these sure, yeah, exchanges going on, yeah. And I think as you're, you're when you talk about it in aesthetics, it's um, you know, there, there's certainly a place for the simple and the and the even depending on how you're defining the minimalistic, but I think there because the world is super abundant. Um, it's sometimes, I think, I think we've mentioned this before. I'm often thinking about architecture on, just cause it's a pet passion, <laughs> pet, pet love. Um, there, there's a reason we reject certain buildings that are stripped down so much that they're, they feel barren and that we're still drawn to things that might be even considered ornate. And there's a, there's a, there's a stepping over the line that can happen there and it becomes kind of gratuitous and in a way that's kind of gaudy or whatever it might be. But but we're still drawn to these buildings where the the detail was important in like each column wasn't just a column, which is already impressive in of itself, but it has this little thing. And then that little thing has this little thing going off of it. And that little leaf has a little bug on it. You know, and it's just um, mm. it, that it, it's, it's the artist trying to represent the, that superabundance, right? The, yes. the architect trying to represent that superabundance and, and, and be in line with it. So the building f- fits the world because the world is super abundant. Um, yes. And yes. so reality is yes. Reality. And it, yes. That's what he seems to be saying. This is true. Reality. You're reminding me too. I think I mentioned this before, but you know, the architect Christopher Alexander yeah. um, talks about pattern language and he talks about the quality that cannot be named. Yes. Yes. And um, in these patterns and um and and it basically, I think we're kind of tr- naming, we're getting close to with Richard Wilbur naming that quality of superabundance, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. organic superabundance that we believe, along with Maritan and others, that mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. the way the world is. And that's what Wilbur believes. He believes that this is what the world does to us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean... I think we should finish this stanza, but I, I think that one of the questions is, wow, I mean, if we're in a fallen world, which Wilbur also believed, mm-hmm. um, why is it so good? <laughs> right. You know? Even fallen, why is it so good? Yeah. 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 Why is it so abundant? Why is it bursting its seams? Yeah. And why do we get to participate? It's not good apart, just apart from us. That's what this poem is doing. It's, we have a role in its superabundance. 
What a yeah. is that? Yeah, and the gift of language is it, it it joins that superabundance by writing a poem like this, right? By sharing it. It it's another layer of the superabundance. You don't just have to experience it in a mind that can't then share it. Um we have this gift of language to to become part of the superabundance. And I think even mm -hmm. in naming it superabundance we're still recognizing what what Alexander's talking about when he says that which can't be named because the name superabundance is like we can't even that's that's a, that's the best name we can give it is that it's just right it's not even a good word but, right it's multivalence <laughs> is a better word multivalence yeah and and those names just recognize that it's you can't capture it all in a in a word <laughs> um we should finish it the yeah you're right i he does something again where he uses language which would be the opposite usage for so often for me um, when he says wishing ever to sunder when he's talking about how be beautiful changes are in kind ways mm. we, we use that word sunder so often to to separate things in kind of a, a violent way or a, um, a if not a destructive then in a, in a sad way right like uh, i mean torn asunder is most we often hear it in, most often in in the wedding vows right or in the wedding ceremony. Um, but he's using it in this way that's parsing things and things selves, um, which brings us right back to, yeah, there's this thing, there's this leaf, right? But let's parse it from this individual leaf. I, I don't know, I read that more as going, coming back again to this idea of leafiness and greenness and thingness. And what we've been talking about, there are multiple representations of green and leaf and tree and field and they all help us understand treeness and leafness mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and so that's this other sundering the thing from the thing selves and it's again this platonic idea of it doesn't destroy it to think about it separately from the the artifact it, it actually uh, we're dwelling we're contemplating the thing itself the, the the or the manifestation we have to understand the essence itself um and that's a second finding it's yes the the beauty of the leaf strikes you that's the one finding right that's the wonder the the chameleon is wonderful to watch it, watching a chameleon change colors is, is a exercise in wonder i mean any kid who sees that happen their eyes get as big as saucers and you know it's the first time they see that they just can't believe it um but it's it's the second finding that brings us back to wonder again so we get to come back to wonder maybe when we're adults like wilbur and we're too um uh, we take we take the chameleon too nonchalantly. <laughs> what the chameleon can do, it's the it's the contemplation that allows us to enter back into the wonder. That maybe is a struggle for us. The older we get, the more callous we get. And, but it's this second wonder uh, that beauty does to us. It doesn't stop. It keeps doing things to change things to keep catching us, catch our eye. Yeah, the metamorphosis oh. is part of the wonder. Right. And I like that way you're unpacking that last line. Um, so it's a second finding. We lose for a moment all that it touches mm -hmm. back to wonder. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like you you have to lose something in order to find it again. Um, but it's just a moment, and then, um, and then it's and then you're returned to wonder, and it's in wonder that you actually know, right? So you're returned to knowledge. Mm -hmm. That, that's those lines, a second finding to lose for a moment, all that it touches back to wonder. You lose it back to wonder, right? Right. Um, it touches 
it touches itself back to wonder like you it touches itself and you touch it and then i like that word touch too because it's mm-hmm. in a way the whole poem is about these touches mm-hmm. right it's about a touching back a groping back and there's the touching with the mind mm-hmm. um, as well as the juxtaposition of chameleon and green and, and forest Right, because so, like Hopkins, he gives us so many very physical, tactile images. Um, but 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 he brings us he brings in that, like you said, touching of the mind. It's it's those things are the experiences, or the are the cues, or the 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 metaphors he gives us um, that the mind can go back even deeper into the wonder. Mm-hmm. I love that. Go back. The mind can go back even deeper into the wonder. And again, I think he is saying that Aristotelian thing, right, too, is that that's how we know. Like, we don't really know things unless we have the wonder. Mm. We don't really have the wonder and the knowing unless we have the changing um, and the kind of losing and finding. Right. Um, and that's why this is... um a change of metamorphosis, not of disintegration. Um, And it it kind of also makes you want to accept um, the mutability of the world as part Mm. of the knowing of the world. Right. Instead of grieving over it. Because it's easy to grieve it, you know? Yes. Uh, Especially when the change is, feels like a loss of something we don't want to lose. Um, Mm -hmm. It's good to be reminded that the, the, the other option, the only, really the only option is, is, is for the world to become stagnant. And um, Mm -hmm. that's much, much worse. Uh, uh, You know, and I think part of this, this is part of the platonic point too, is that if the value is true, it will survive in other forms and part of what we love is that it's surviving mm-hmm. um, that that it's it's a beautiful thing this process of survival this process of changing from form to form or from form to mind to form you know mm-hmm. that's really a beautiful thing what is the who does the wishing refer to wishing um, I think oh, this is where it says the beautiful, and um, I think he's referring to the beautiful as the as the actor changes in such kind ways, wishing ever to sunder. So the beautiful is wishing ever to sunder things from things selves for a second finding. Um, that, that that's how I read it anyway. So it's the beautiful that wishes it. Mm-hmm, I think so. Mm-hmm. I think so too. I think um, the beautiful wishing ever to sunder things and things selves for a second finding. And it's why the beautiful, I think, in, at least in this poem, is its action is changed, right? The beautiful is action is changed. It's not uh, to free something in time necessarily. Um, right. Uh, like we often think of with a, we often, often I think we feel that we think that way about a, a 
a painting or a statue that it froze something beautiful, but not, but really that's not the purpose of those things. The purpose of those things is to capture it, but in a way that is catches your eye. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And I think that's what it's saying here. The beautiful won't let you stagnate. It keeps doing things to catch your eye, to catch your ear, mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. you know, um, to remind you of the beautiful, <laughs> to remind, to, mm -hmm. to and bring you back to this wonder, to, uh, draw you away from the distractions maybe or, or out of yourself, your own head sometimes a little bit to, to notice these things and to notice the superabundancy of the world that, the, of the, that we've been talking about. And, um, and so that's, that's its wish. It's wishes to continue to do that for us over and over again. Yes. And for itself. Yes. To it beauties for beauty's sake is perpetuating itself. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, we have to be willing to let that, um, I don't know, metamorphosis be part of reality. Um, there's a part of us that wants to kind of freeze the thing mm. in what we see as its ideal state. But I think part of what he's doing is saying, no, there's this, the singleness of, of state mm -hmm. is not the best way to capture reality. And it creates all kinds of things, nostalgia, um, uh, rigidity and not, not the best mirror to, to reality. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, this came up uh, again when we were in that Plato class I'm taking with Matt that um, we were discussing one of the dialogues that was, just, that was talking about beauty in particular and that we have this, uh, well, we got onto the, to the beauty in, in when it comes to, to woman and we have this narrow kind of definition of that as a, and I think over, but historically there was this, or at least there's this idea of the maiden and the mother and, and I'm going to forget the other, but that those are all beautiful. They're, they're all things that are beautiful things to be right. The maiden is beautiful as a maiden. Changes. Yeah. Those are, but those are changes in the woman that mm -hmm. are a maturing. That's beautiful. Um, that, you know, th there's not life if the maiden doesn't become a mother, right? <laughs> it, it's a, the, 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 the continuation of life gets cut off. If that never happens. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it has this intrinsic beauty. And so I think this is the same thing, right? The, 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 like you're talking about, we have to embrace that metamorphosis, we have to embrace the, the change that comes with beauty um, in order to, to receive all of it, to, to appreciate all of it, to benefit from all of it. Um, yeah. And I think even, I would even say to repossess, to repossess it, mm. you know, I mean, if we, we, we can think of the world as just loss mm -hmm. um, if we don't have this notion, right? Of, you know, repossession of the next layer, you know, yeah, the next manifestation. And, and I think theologically, there's some grounding for that in, in, you know, since Christ's resurrection, we have been in the the latter days, you know, there, there's a, there's a re 
there's a repossession of what was lost and the world is broken and it is a fallen world, but we're to participate in that, in that repossession. We're to participate in the, in the beautifying and the recognizing and the, the, you know, eradication of the ugly and the painful and the, and to the extent that we can participate in, in the work uh, of Christ to the church and as individuals. And, um, that's part of this, right? That's it's writing beautiful poems that <laughs> it's, just the act of paying attention to the field ourselves and taking the mm-hmm. time to stop and, uh, and look at the Queen's Anne's lace and see it and, uh, you know, experience it. Um, that's part of our work. And, and Richard uh, and Wilbur brings that to our, mm-hmm. to our attention mm-hmm. by participating in it, both as an observer and then as a, as a reflector, mm-hmm. uh, as, a, as someone who then adds to it. Contemplates. Yes. Yeah. I I do have a partiality to the first stanza. I mean, even though I think the other stanzas say important things, I think mm-hmm. the first stanza is the best um, actor, the best one in the best agent mm-hmm. of this experience. Um, and even the fact, even Queen Anne's lace, even the flower that is supposedly the you know, the thing that's being changed is already a reference to a man-made thing, you know, the lace, making lace. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how this weed got named, you know? Um, and so, it, you know, in it, I just feel those movements um, mm-hmm. of, you know, an artifact made by man women women's hands and then a flower and then compared right. to another flower and then um the beloved and the valley of the mind i mean it's just yeah even queen's Anne's lace like you said it's named for something that's man-made but also it's a weed that we then named after a queen right like we yeah we elevate this weed and and a weed is something that chokes out right uh, oftentimes. And so that's repossessing it like, no, okay. It's, it's got a beautiful flower on it. We're going to give it a beautiful name and, and rep and repossess it by naming it, re- by, by naming it. Yes. Yes. And I, I love that it wasn't always considered a flower, you know, right. it wasn't worthy of that name. Right. Um, so, and in, in again, it's the mind, it's the perception that makes it worthy. It's mm-hmm. the likening, you know, it's right. the metaphor that makes it um, what it is and brings it to our own perceptive lives in that form. Right. You yeah. should think lace, you know. It, it, it's seeing the world analogically right and saying, okay, yes, it, exactly. looks like, it looks like lace. I'm going to give it a, a name that. Yes. Yeah. Um, should we say anything about the rhyme scheme? Yes. It, 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 it took me a while to notice it. Um, you know, his, his, um, lines are, uh, it got short and long in, in there, but, um, I guess it's like an A, B, A, C, D, C. Yes. And the, like the B's and the D's are um, sometimes closer and sometimes mm-hmm, farther mm-hmm. away. 
So it's kind of almost hard and imperceptible to even yeah, there it's that very subtle, yeah, very subtle uh, rhymes. Um, and then also each stanza has a sentence. Um, and and to that end, there's always a semicolon. Um, mm. So that's also quite you know sinuous. It gives mm -hmm. it room to metamorphose essentially, right. Yes, yeah, it feels like a it feels like a pretty pliable form that he's using. Mm -hmm. And if you look at those words, um, sides, glides, turns, lucernes, changed, arranged, grows, knows, says, weighs, sunder, wonder. Mm -hmm. um, they're all manifesting mm -hmm. the kinds of movements that he's talking about right mm -hmm. yeah and not very many hard hard rhymes either they you know um you have sides ends and s's and ooze and um it's it's kind of yeah that which to me is that that it, again is that metamorphosis right those are kind of slow and it and there's a change and it's it's um it's it feels more flowy and continuous that meta the change mm -hmm. which is which is also the imagery he gives us in the beginning with the the meadow this kind of gliding and waves and yeah mess. yeah mm -hmm. would you um would it be a benefit uh for me to read a couple more poems of his for readers who don't know him yeah i think that'd be good give them a couple more and then we can uh wrap up after that okay sounds great and um and again i i want to just make an argument i i do really think that this this essay poetry and happiness is so worth reading um he talks about different poetic instincts mm -hmm. you know one is to kind of name the external world the other is to name the internal world although both do both um, and he says, like, the, the happy poem is one that where there's a kind of balance between the internal and external. Um, and uh, he also talks about the kind of different different offices of the poet, um, such as, uh, you know, list making, uh, the desire to lay claim to as much of the world as possible through uttering the names of things. The kind of vicarious alertness that we receive from the poet. Um, as I said, the longing to possess the whole world and praise or at least feel it. Um, the um, uttering the whole of that world. Um, the word hunting and word cherishing. Um, the... Um, inventory of external reality as well as the discovery and projection of the self um the articulation of one person's intense inward observation yet because they are so articulate and so true they light up both the poet's psychology and everyone else um i'll try then, to I'll try to make sure I put a link to 
that uh, essay. Um, That's where, great. Where people can find it. And then he also does a really good job of um, describing the cult American culture and the fact that Robert Frost was likely the last poet that had a culture to speak to, that had a culture to receive. Okay. He made, and that that lack of reception on the part of um, a poet's culture is makes it very hard for us to have poets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing at Circe to kind of have a culture of poetry where the poetry is received and maybe a poet would even begin to, you know, I know that when David talked about my poem um, on Poetry Daily, I just had this sense of, oh my goodness, there's someone <laughs> actually listening, there's someone thinking about this. And then yeah, yeah. that feeds back into what you might think or say or or manifest you know and he's saying the absence of that in our culture which he quotes someone Hemingway as calling it a minor degraded and anti-humanistic culture (laughs) um life is a disjunction and incoherence aggravated by an intolerable tolerable race of change Our cities bristle like quartz clusters with faceless new buildings of aluminum and glass, bare of symbolic ornament because they have nothing to say. Our painters and sculptors despair of achieving any human significance Mm. and descend into the world of fashion to market their Coke bottles and optical toys. Anyway, he goes on and on, but it's, it's really a profound insight into the kind of isolation that we feel because we don't have a common naming of things that we all share. Mm-hmm. So I, I think people will really enjoy that. And um, uh, maybe I'll just read one or two more poems. Um, okay. I have Richard Wilbur's poem, read, one of them read at my wedding. Um, so I, I have had a long, <laughs> I discovered him in college when I was, um, a sophomore and um just couldn't believe he was my contemporary you know mm-hmm. this is called the writer in her room at the prow of the house where light breaks and the windows are tossed with linden my daughter is writing a story i pause on the stairwell hearing from her shut door a commotion of typewriter keys like a chain hauled over a gunwale Young as she is, the stuff of her life is a great cargo, and some of it heavy. I wish her a lucky passage. But now it is she who pauses as if to reject my thought and its easy figure. A stillness greatens in which the whole house seems to be thinking. And then she is at it again with a bunched clamor of strokes and again is silent I remember the dazed starling which was trapped in that very room two years ago. How we stole in, lifted a sash, and retreated not to affright it. And how for a helpless hour, through the crack of the door, we watched the sleek, wild, dark, and iridescent creature batter against the brilliance, drop like a glove to the hard floor or the desktop and then wait humped and bloody for the wits to try it again. And how our spirits rose when 
suddenly sure, it lifted off from a chair back, beating a smooth course for the right window and clearing the sill of the world. It is always a matter, my darling, of life or death, as I had forgotten. I wish what I wished you before, but harder. Just a last one. Love calls us to the things of this world, which is the one that I read at my wedding. The eyes open to a cry of pulleys and spirited from sleep. The astounded soul hangs for a moment, bodiless and simple as false dawn. Outside the open window, the morning air is all awash with angels. Some are in bedsheets, some are in blouses, some are in smocks. But truly, there they are. Now they're rising together in calm swells of halcyon feeling, filling whatever they wear with the deep joy of their impersonal breathing. Now they're flying in place, conveying the terrible speed of their omnipresence, moving and staying like white water. And now of a sudden they swoon down into so wrapped a quiet that nobody seems to be there. The soul shrinks from all that it is about to remember from the punctual rape of every blessed day and cries, let there be nothing on earth but laundry, nothing but rosy hands in the rising steam and clear dances done in the sight of heaven. Yet as the sun acknowledges with a warm look, the world's hunks and colors, the soul descends once more in bitter love to accept the waking body saying now in a changed voice as the man yawns and rises, bring them down from their ruddy gallows. Let there be clean linen for the backs of thieves. Let lovers go fresh and sweet to be undone. And the heaviest nuns walk in a pure floating of dark habits, keeping their difficult balance. So wow. I mean, it's a platonic poem for you, right? This what a like, great last line, keeping their difficult balance. Yeah, there's something in us that just doesn't want to accept the waking body, you know? We yeah. want something higher and freer. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, it's just laundry if there's in a body in it. That's right. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that, especially when it was such a personal choice for your for your wedding. Appreciate that. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for talking. It was great to be with you. It has been lovely once again. So uh, thank you all for joining us on Quiddity as we refresh ourselves at Systems of Learning, Doug Long Ago, Drawing from Springs Too Deep for Taint. You can send us your comments and questions to podcast at circeinstitute.org. You can join the Quiddity conversation on the Circe Circle at circe.circle.so. And I hope you'll join us next week for another episode. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Circe Podcast Network.